reading this morning comes from 1 John, chapter 1, and we commence at the first verse. It's on page 1228 of the Bibles in the pews. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will give us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Here ends our reading. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get underway. If you could have your Bibles open to 1 John chapter 1, or keep them open to where Bruce was reading from, that would be very, very helpful for me, and probably you too. But uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, settle our hearts, and uh, give us ears to hear the testimony in your Scriptures to your dear Son. And we don't just want to hear with our ears, but also with our hearts and with our lives and with our wills that we might change to become more like him. Amen. Amen. Atheism is a cultural force today. And depending on your source for news or entertainment, you might be forgiven for thinking that most people today, most thinking people today, that is, are convicted atheists. That is, people who are not only not believers in God, but people who believe with a fair amount of certainty that God does not exist. Now, I'm going to suggest that the cultural force of atheism is an exaggerated one, but it's a cultural force nonetheless. And you see, I was going to ask you this morning to conduct a mental experiment about whether you're more likely to see an article or a, or a media spot that affirms religious beliefs or undermines religious belief in the newspapers or on TV. Or maybe there's a second part to that mental experiment. And uh, if you saw an article that affirmed religious belief, and if you scrolled down to the bottom, because nobody actually you know, reads the physical newspaper, you scroll down the bottom to the comments threads where anybody can kind of type in a response, would you be more likely to see comments that were supportive of religious belief or were cynical about religious belief? So I was going to get you to work this morning, but lucky for you, as it turns out, I don't need to conduct a mental experiment because my go-to source for news, the Sydney Morning Herald, which I love, did all the work for me over the Easter weekend. Very kind of them. 
In the past week, uh, the paper printed a number of articles with a religious flavour. Some of them were negative. But uh, the Herald generously published an article by the Centre for Public Christianity, which is a Christian media company. It's directed by one of um, the members of our five congregation called Simon Smart. And this article is about how the events of Easter, Jesus' death and resurrection, have inspired many people, great and small, to serve rather than to be served. And that has made society a better place than it otherwise would be. And for me, it was a champagne... Centre for Public Christianity kind of article. It was well written. Uh, It didn't try to overreach in its claims. It appealed to the secular audience by quoting from atheist authors to make a point. It had literary flourishes for those who appreciate beautiful writing. But I scrolled down. Very first comment that came up on my thread was this. What a load of hogwash. Now that didn't really engage with the substance of the article, but it was pretty clear. Second comment was this. These values, that is of self-sacrificial service, are humanist values and they don't require religion to underpin them. Now, again, not really engaging with the, the thrust of the article, but again, very clear. And actually, those two sentiments were repeated time and again in all the media pieces that I read that had a religious flavour this past week. Now, I will admit that is illustrative, it's not scientific, but you'd be forgiven for thinking that most thinking people today are convicted atheists. It's a cultural force. Now, I said it's an exaggerated cultural force because our census data reveals that though there's a significant proportion of people who live in Manly who tick the no religion box, which is why we're going to talk about that next week, only a very small percentage of people are convicted atheists. But it's a cultural force, no less, one that sort of punches above its statistical weight. And whether that's with the kind of really hard-nosed, a little bit nasty breed of new atheists characterised by Richard Dawkins or the late Christopher Hitchens, or whether it's kind of the nicer new wave of new atheists, um, people like Alain de Botton, who you might not agree with, but you'd much rather have lunch with, or um, even at kind of the popular local level, Uh, with people like Peter Fitzsimmons, who loves to just poke fun at sports stars who have religious beliefs. And he was, um, you know, at his usual game in yesterday's paper. But part of the reason why I think atheism punches above its statistical weight is that the arguments raised in these two kind of online comments are actually quite appealing in their more considered form. Okay, so what a load of hogwash sounds a bit crude... But it's basically saying, look, there's no evidence for God. Um, God doesn't fit the data. Science and other things have done away with our need for God. And secondly, we don't need God anymore. We're fine without him. Uh, So-called Christian values, they're just human values. We don't need a transcendent God. And so why not atheism if there's no evidence for God and we don't need him anyway? Well, uh, as Emily said, we're uh, starting a a short four-week series this week called Why Not? And we're looking at some of the prevailing uh, worldviews in our culture. Atheism, no religion, and they're not the same thing, by the way. Um, Buddhism and Islam. And we're just posing the question, why not? I mean, we want to live in a society where people are free to believe what they want, 
rather than being coerced. And if we want people to be free to believe what they want, we also ought to be happy for people to discuss it freely. So could you give any or either of them a go? Why not? And specifically today, why not atheism? I mean, it's a pretty large topic, so we can't say everything about atheism, can't answer every objection there might be to religious belief. But today, I'd like to consider just those two arguments that we've spoken of already. One is kind of observational and external. It's the question of evidence. Is there any? And the other is kind of existential or internal, and it's the question of whether we need God to make life work. So that's where we're going. So if we look at the question of evidence for God, it is an important question to think through. Because why would you believe in God if there's no evidence for him? If you only believed in God because you need a special invisible friend or a psychological crutch to get you through life, then that's a little bit pitiful, isn't it? A little bit pathetic, a little bit juvenile. There's got to be something to go on more than just our felt need for there to be a superior, transcendent, big guy in the sky. So why not atheism if there's no evidence for God? And look, I think on this question of evidence, there really is a a little bit of a dichotomy in culture where the forces of kind of evidence and science are pitted unnecessarily against faith and religion kind of pitted it against one another like two heavyweight boxers in the ring. Although only one's considered to be a heavyweight, isn't it? <laughs> the other's a lightweight. But it's sort of science versus God, or reason versus religion, or fact versus faith. And if it's put like that, of course the thinking person is going to feel obliged to choose science or reason or fact over God, religion or faith. Let me illustrate how I've seen this work. Uh, When I previously worked with young people, I met a young man named Robbie. He's a lovely young guy. He would have been 15 at the time. He was a gentleman, inquisitive, but an atheist by conviction. And I did wonder how you could be a convicted atheist at the age of 15. And then I found out that he came from a family of sceptics. He'd basically kind of grown up with it, which is interesting in itself. But we were talking about that whole evidence for God thing. And he said to me, you know... You Christians, you start with God and you argue backwards from there. We atheists, we're more honest. We start with nothing and then we try to find evidence. And that sounds reasonable, doesn't it? And it sounds honest and it sounds authentic. But actually, it was a remarkable comment for a number of reasons. Not because he wanted evidence for God, which is fair enough, but because he was only prepared to go with scientific evidence. It was at the the very height of Richard Dawkins' popularity following the release of his book called The God Delusion, where Richard Dawkins kind of argued from evolutionary biology that our belief in God was itself a delusion, hence the name of the book. So it was remarkable. He was only open to consider scientific knowledge. It was also remarkable, I thought, because of his optimistic faith, really, in his own abilities, in the scientific method, in his capacity to find something, in his capacity to know when he had found something and to be able to interpret or process it uh, properly. I thought that was quite optimistic. And so at first glance, it sounds reasonable and 
honest and authentic. But what he was really saying was that because he hadn't discovered God from his limited search of all available knowledge, let's just say that's blue, there was none and there could be no evidence for God anywhere else in all available knowledge. That's the rest of the yellow. And that really is an overreach. The tools that he was using in his search for God and in the area of knowledge that he considered valid was really just limited to that scientific process, observing the observable and drawing conclusions from that. And the truth is, you actually can't prove that God exists by science or mathematics. If the scientific process involves observing the observable in the physical world, in the natural world, you can't prove God by science when he is by definition spiritual and supernatural. I mean, I personally, let me go on record, I personally think that science hints or points to the existence of a great creator. When you think about just the sheer improbability of there being a planet that sustains human life, or just the incredible complexity and order that's sewn into the, the entire universe and cosmos, wow. But it's not like you can arrive at an equation that proves God exists. By the way, you can't disprove him by science either. Truth is, there's lots that science can prove and disprove, but there's a whole lot of things that science is just ill-equipped to comment on. For example, science cannot tell you what I had for breakfast five days ago. It can't tell you who I had it with. It can't tell you whether I enjoyed it. It cannot tell you who founded the city of London, who discovered Australia. It can tell you about some of my brain chemistry, and you'll be delighted to know that there is something going on there. But it's ill-equipped to show you that I'm in love with my wife, that I like my sons, and that if I had it my way, I'd be a best-selling crime novelist or a lead guitarist in an honest-to-goodness rock and roll band. You see, it's not just the kids that want to be like Dave Hanbury. Me too. But I can't play and I can't sing. <laughs> going to be a problem there. So science is kind of the perfect set of tools to tell us about the physical world, the observational natural world, the phenomenal world, trees and birds and black holes and dark matter and chemicals and bacteria. But that's not the only world there is. And science isn't the only kind of information or knowledge available. Now let me put it another way. Even if at a cosmic level we can show that the Big Bang happened which I personally don't have a problem with. Or even at a smaller level, we could prove definitively that evolution accounted for all species, which I think is going to be difficult to prove given how expansive that idea is. But, but even if we could definitively show both those things via science, what about the questions like, why is there something rather than nothing? And what are we here on earth for? And in point of actual fact, the scientific method has to be silent on those questions. And we need another set of tools to answer those questions. And fortunately for us, there are lots of other tools at our disposal to discover those kinds of answers. So if you want to know things about the past, what I had for breakfast, who founded the city of London, I mean, you know, equally important things like that, we'll need a different set of knowledge. We'll need historical knowledge, won't we? And if we want to find out whether I enjoyed my breakfast or I love my wife or I want to be a novelist, then we'll need different kind of knowledge again. We'll need what you might call personal revelation. 
There's just different kinds of knowledge, different kinds of information that are available to us. And some are better than others at answering that question, does God exist? When by definition, he's not natural, he's not physical, he's supernatural and he's spiritual. Now that, of course, does leave the question open. So, Scott, what evidence is there for God? Well, what do the writers of the New Testament say? What does the Apostle John say in 1 John chapter 1? That which was, read along in in your Bibles or up here, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make our joy complete. Is there evidence for God? Yep. Is it scientific evidence? Nope. What kind of testimony is it? Well, it's both historical evidence and it's personal revelation, isn't it? In these verses, we see the apostles, like the Apostle John, writing about Jesus, and here he is called the Word of Life. And what do they say about him? He was from the beginning. And if you know anything about the Bible, you know that is a way of saying that Jesus is God. Remember Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. First line of the Bible. John chapter 1 verse 1, first line of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. First line here, in the beginning was the word of life. That's Jesus again. They even say in verse 2, he's the eternal life. And so firstly, they say that Jesus is God. He's been around since the beginning. But then extraordinarily, they say, and then he appeared to us. He appeared to them. They saw them with their own eyes. They heard them with their ears. They touched them with their hands. They had fellowship and friendship with him and what they saw and heard and touched and loved they proclaim they reveal to us in the pages of scripture which is to say just the small thing that God turned up in history as the person of Jesus it's on record we've got eyewitness accounts many of them but it's not just a matter of cold and clinical dates and names and facts and figures it is deeply personal knowledge as well they touched him and had fellowship with him and they loved him you remember don't you the words of the ultimate rationalist the skeptic among the disciples that we were thinking about last week on easter sunday the disciple thomas puts his fingers in the nail marks in the hands of the resurrected Jesus, puts his hand in the spear wound in the side of the resurrected Jesus, and he testifies of Jesus, my Lord and my God. 
So why not atheism, friends? Because as a matter of both historical data and personal revelation, God exists. He has even shown up for us. The eternal life, the one who was there in the beginning, came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He claimed to be God. He did God-like things and then he died. But then he rose again and appeared to many hundreds of people. God showed up and you could have touched him. And so that answers the, uh, the kind of external question about evidence and data. But what about this second question of whether we need him? That sort of internal, that existential question. Why not atheism? Because we don't actually need God anymore. And when we're thinking about this kind of question, I'm not even uh, talking about the question of ethics and morality, saying we don't need God in order to be good. When I'm talking about the internal existential question, I'm not even asking, do we need God in order to develop a logical moral framework? I'm not even talking about that. What I'm saying is, how do we make sense of our place in the world and the broad sweep of eternity without God? Because if we argue that God does not exist, what we are in fact saying is that we come from no one, we are here for no reason and no cause, and when we die, we go nowhere. We come from no one, we're here for no reason, we're going nowhere. Now, I do not think that is a vision for the flourishing human life. Do you? It's a demoralizingly bleak view of the world and of our place in it. Going back to uh, Richard Dawkins, he's okay with it. This is what he says about the bleakness. The universe is black, cold and empty. So what? If someone gets depressed by that, it's their problem. (laughs) Thank you for that uplifting thought, Richard. (laughs) Uh, More recently, uh, some atheist writers and, and bloggers have even tried to be cheered by that thought. But most of us find it a problem, don't we? That we come from no one, we're here for no reason, and we're going nowhere. I mean, that's a problem if we want to find meaning and purpose beyond carving out a comfortable little existence for ourselves and perhaps our kin in the brief sneeze of time we have that is called a human life. A few short years. Even if we are convinced that God is not true and does not exist, we ought to want him to be true and to exist. Because when we lie back on the warm ground on one of those lovely summer evenings, looking up at the extraordinary universe that God has made, instead of being filled with wonder, it means we need to be filled with confusion and perplexity. What's it all about? Because when we stand next to the grave of a departed friend or lover, we have to content ourselves with the thought that whatever was good about them is now gone. All we have left is photos and memories. Rather than being heartened that we will see them again in resurrected glory. Richard, I think it is a problem. Isn't it true that we live like there's meaning beyond just the little we can do with our small lives? We want our actions to count to someone, even if they seem to make a little difference down here. We want there to be justice when it doesn't seem like there's always justice here. Deep down, I suspect we know that we are not just an accident a product of slime multiplied by time. 
and we do want to be known by God. Just have that inner sense of right and wrong so that when we've been wronged, we desire restoration. Boy, when we're wronged, we desire restoration, don't we? And when we have done the wronging, we desire reconciliation and forgiveness. And oftentimes, not just from another person, we want it from God. I'm going to tell you about my favourite band uh, of all time. It's a neo-punk rock band called the Gaslight Anthem from New Jersey. They look like this. And uh, if you're cool enough to listen to Triple J, you might have heard of them. I'm not cool enough to listen to Triple J. I discovered them in the St Ives Village Community Library. Yeah. So there were one of their CDs was available for, to borrow, so I slotted in my computer with the headphones on, and the sound, like, it just poured straight into my soul like mercury. And without exaggeration, I thought, this is the best sound I've heard in 10 years. And I'm like, to all the other people in the library, have you heard this? Have you heard this? But they're all kind of 80-year-old ladies reading Maeve Binchy novels. And so they just looked up and said, shh, the library, you idiot. <laughs> I don't think they'd heard of them. Now, here's the thing, right? Most um, musical artists from New Jersey, they write about girls, they sing about cars, sometimes girls in cars leaving New Jersey to get out. It's mostly what they sing about. But this band here, uh, they're quite perceptive. And in one of their songs, they kind of lament the direction that kind of American culture and society has taken in kind of abandoning their cultural heritage, including their Christian heritage. Let me read out just uh, one of the verses of one of their songs. Everybody lately is living up in space, flying through transmissions on invisible airwaves, with everything discovered just waiting to be known... What's left for God to teach from his throne? And who will forgive us when he's gone? Just a ballad, um, surprisingly, backed by a quiet acoustic guitar picking away, and it you know, sounds ghostly and lovely. But what's it saying? We've just become so engrossed in physics and technology and astronomy and the internet and space and transmissions and invisible airwaves and discovery, and they're all good things, and... We think that we can explain it all, but what we've actually done is left no room to be taught anything about the soul of the universe, about God himself. And that leaves a massive gap in our own souls. The truth is we do need God and we know it deep down and we'll be bereft if we lose him because then there'll be no one to teach us eternal spiritual things, no one to forgive us. And that idea or thought is true at the individual level where a punk band from New Jersey of all places reminds us that as individuals we need God, we need his forgiveness, we need to know that he cares, we need to know that there is a reason we will put on this planet, that life is more than just exploration plus explanation, that on our, on our deathbeds we know that we're going somewhere. But that thought is true at a society's level and even a national level. So you think of a country like China, one of the last atheistic regimes left, and there is a growing house church movement. There are 100 million Christians in China compared to 87 million communist cadres. More Christians than communists in China. And the Christians aren't even allowed to meet in churches there. They meet in people's basements and garages. And they reckon in the next 15 years, there'll be 250 million, one quarter of a billion Christians in China. 
So you can try to squeeze God out or leave him no space or ban him, but it just doesn't work because it's ultimately dissatisfying to say that we come from no one, we're here for no reason, and we're going nowhere. So why not atheism? Well, firstly, because it doesn't match the historical data, but also because it doesn't track with our internal spiritual realities. The Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes says that God has set or sown eternity into the human heart. And Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. We sense it deep down, which means you just cannot shut God out of the picture. It does not work. He has things to teach us from his throne. He has grace and forgiveness to offer us. And millions upon millions upon millions of people are living testimony to this reality. So back to our reading from 1 John. What does it say about God from verse 5? He is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And his light can't be snuffed out in nations as a whole or in individuals. And when we acknowledge the reality of this God who is made known to us in history in the person of Christ, then we are on a path to the flourishing human life, one in which we can own up to the truths about ourselves, that we often walk in darkness. Yes, we do. That we need the light of his goodness and instruction and his forgiveness of our weaknesses and sin and failings, however you would like to describe them, and his cleansing and salvation because of what Jesus did for us in his life and death and resurrection to new life. Friends, there are things that science cannot save us from. And there is a greater discovery to be made than the far reaches of the galaxy. That God is there. That he knows us and cares about us enough to enter our history as a man called Jesus. To live among us and then to die for us. To bring us back into relationship and right standing with him that we might know him and experiencing the same deep joy that the apostles wrote of. That is a far more satisfying answer to the deep questions of life than merely we are here from no one, for nothing, and going nowhere, and if that's too bleak, just deal with it. And so rather than finish with the question... Why not atheism? I don't even want to finish with the question, why not theism? I have to finish with the question, why not Jesus? He's God. He's been from the beginning. He entered history and people saw him with their own eyes and heard him with their own ears and touched him with their own hands. And then they've told us about him in the pages of Scripture. So there is data and there is evidence, but more so so that there might be life in his name and forgiveness and cleansing and joy so that these days we call life would not be a sneeze or a cough or a breath, but that we might know God from whom we come, that we might know our place and our purpose in the world that he's made, however he's made it and that we can go to him after we die. Why not atheism? I would say, why not Jesus? That, my friends, is a question for the student of life to consider very, very carefully. And it's a challenge for the believer to live out 
with great joy, just as the apostles did. Why don't you join with me in praying? Dear Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for the Lord Jesus, who has been there from the beginning and entered human history, giving testimony and witness to himself. So there is evidence and data that you exist. I'm sure you're glad that we're telling you that. Moreover, Lord, uh, we discover that the existence of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ lets us know that we are here from someone. We are here for something, and we're going to go be with him once we die. Let that be something that fills our hearts with great joy and warmth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.